This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello, I'm Jake Cantor and a warm welcome to the show. On Talking TV this week, we discuss some of the fears about plans to transform BBC Productions and assess why Amazon is airing Ripper Street like a traditional TV drama. We'll also talk to ITV political editor Tom Bradby about where he found the time to write drama The Great Fire. And as always, we'll have some previews. On the agenda is BBC Two's behind-the-scenes take on Tatler and Nat Geo's Hasselhoff versus the Berlin Wall. That's all coming up over the next half an hour. Joining me at Maple Street Studios is broadcast editor Chris Curtis and, of course, uh, Stephen D. Wright. Welcome, gents. Hello. Hi. How are you both? Always excited. To Always be excited to be here. TV. <laughs> this is going into the ears of the movers and shakers of the TV industry. <laughs> Chris. Let's, ho- let's hope so. Yeah, we're good. Uh, broadcasters. Uh, you haven't tick- been on for a while. Ticking over. No, I don't know what. I, you haven't invited me, Jake. Um, <laughs> We've had to up our female quota. Yeah, indeed. In, indeed. Well, as a white middle class. Oppressed male. Yeah, well, what did Grayson Perry call it? The, the default male is his thing that he's railing against. And. Um, I, bo- I love the Channel 4 show and also worry a little bit that uh, I might be part of that default mail. Never mind. Moodles. You went to his uh, exhibition last week, didn't you? Yeah, C4 did a, a launch party at the National Portrait Gallery ahead of the first TX and um, he spoke and John Hay, one of the sort of rising stars of Channel 4's commissioning team, spoke uh, very well at that event. And yeah, it's, a, it's one of those things that you think that's great telly and about 600,000 people are watching it. Broadly the same number of people has watched his first series. What can you do? Let's move on to our first uh, item on the news agenda. Uh, We start with the news that BBC has sat down with around 12 indies to begin working out how it is going to transform its production division. The Content Supply Working Group will convene once a month and play a crucial role in deciding how the corporation will scrap quotas and commercialise BBC productions. During the first meeting, producers voiced concerns that the plans could result in BBC Productions walking off with major programming contracts. There were also fears about potential bias towards the new entity from the BBC's commissioning team. Chris, this is the first step in quite a long process, isn't it? Years and years and years, we, we, we probably think. I sort of think good for the BBC for sort of uh, kicking off and getting the indie community involved. Good for those indies who took part for um, actually trying to be sort of collaborative and, and be part of the process rather than just standing on the sidelines and shouting about it and, 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 and complaining. But over the last few months, this has been a bit of a hot topic. Almost every indie I meet says to me, oh, what's, what's, what's going to happen with BBC Productions? The answer is nobody knows at the moment and they are at the start of a really long path trying to unstitch what's been a pretty, inte- well, entirely integral part of the BBC since it was created. And we know some of the companies involved, don't we, in, the, in that initial meeting at least? Yeah, so they have, I mean, they've invited a pretty much a cross-section of producers, um, you know, from, from the sort of super indie side to the, to the smaller uh, companies, companies from... Uh, different parts of the of the country it's clear that they're trying to bring different voices in and get a cross-section of views uh, I think there will be hopefully there'll be an opportunity for even more people to get involved because what I don't think you want to have is a sense that a small group of people are having undue influence and that, and, and that there's not an opportunity for the wider industry to share their views as well. Stephen, do you recognise some of the concerns voiced by the producers? I do but I also am a little bit dismissive of them because This is a major undertaking and it's not the time to nitpick. You know, this is a huge thing, uh, the biggest thing the BBC's done for years. You know, this is basically, I've described this as an enema for the BBC. It's going to clear out a lot of blockage. It may be painful and awkward at first, but they're going to be healthier and fitter and more 
better functioning, I suppose, afterwards. And so I don't uh, have a concern with things like the BBC running off with the, the major contracts they already do have, because it's all this. The, the TV works on a on a who who's the best idea, what's the best thing. That's what it comes down to. Not oh, we'll give it to them, jobs for the boys type thing. That's this is that's the opposite of what this is. It so that kind of old fear that you know the BBC will only hold on to Strictly Come Dancing because they do it well. For example, if that's you know, I don't see why Strictly Come Dancing should suddenly be offered to somebody else. You know, BBC does that. It's the next Strictly Come Dancing. That's what, you know, and they, that's going to go to whoever comes up with it. That's the that, that's the point, I think. That's a pretty fair point, isn't it? I mean, if, if the BBC's producing things well and they're rating, then why should it relinquish, relinquish those contracts? Yeah, I, you, can, uh, you can argue this either way. And they, I think there's going to be a huge, huge debate coming down the line about precisely this issue. It's kind of... You know, you need to sort of draw some comparisons. I guess the argument is uh, something strictly Top Gear, um, uh, Antiques Roadshow, these things. They are public assets in some ways. They were created out of public money. And so if you're then going to create a commercial entity which will potentially succeed or fail based on public assets, you get into sort of murky conversations around privatisation. That is too murky. I mean, it should be, you know, a line in the sand. Beyond that, we're on sort of year zero. That's what it should be. You know, you can look at ITV. Granada makes Coronation Street. Oh, you know, why isn't somebody else making it? Because they've always made it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. That isn't what this is about. This is about the new way forward. And that's more important than anything else and any producer's concerns at this point. The BBC aren't going to fuck people over. They really aren't. OK, we'll stick with the BBC briefly. Uh, influential MP John Whittingdale compared the licence fee this week to the poll tax. This is pretty uh, punchy stuff, isn't it, Chris? Well, the, um, I, I remember the great licence fee riots of... Uh, just. Uh, no, hang on. Um, so what we need to say is, the, of the various MPs who generally know very little about TV, John Whittingdale is arguably the best informed. So I think we need to take his view seriously. I, th- I wonder whether it was a bit of a throwaway phrase. If you look at what he said in, in slightly more context, his view is a bit more nuanced. I think he was broadly speaking saying that over a period of years, and I don't think he's talking about this next charter renewal, this next licence fee settlement, over a period of years, the idea of a one-size-fits-all, everyone pays it, same flat rate, licence fee for the BBC is going to come under pressure. And you can kind of see that coming down the line. But for here and now, um, I think that the BBC will win the argument that the licence fee should remain and that there'll be a a sort of standard kind of settlement um, for the next time. What do you make of the debate going on about the licence fee? Stephen? It's such a hoary old chestnut, it really is. And and the fact that I pay, for example, £45 a month to watch Sky and a Netflix subscription of five ninety nine, and I'll probably download, you know, films on demand from Sky or whoever. Who's paying you? <laughs> exactly. Broadcast certainly are. Um, but you know what I mean? The fact that I'm doing this without blinking an eye... Suddenly there's this £145 is seen as a kind of poll tax, horrendous, unfair. It's bollocks. It really is. Whether the, the, it's changes to a subscription model or this or that, or whatever, the money involved is, is piddling. And so this feels like very old-fashioned sort of Thatcherite kind of politics. You know, let's bash the BBC about something that, that most, as most, people, most people don't care about. You know, they want the BBC to be good. Uh, wastage at the BBC is a bigger issue, and if the if the MP had said anything about that, I'd be you know I'd be flying a flag in its support. But this idea that the 145 pound licence fee is somehow some inequitable tax and this that and the other, absolute rubbish. 
Just does, you know. uh, it does. I mean, it feels like worrying times. Though. I mean, Sajid Javid consistently refers to the license fee as a lot of money, mm. and that appears to be the line from the government at the moment, which they can only suggest one thing: for, for Sky, like nearly everybody else <laughs> in the country. You know I, what I mean? We're still in a period of public austerity, and I think almost everything that any politician says at the moment needs to be viewed in the context of there's an election coming up next oh, year. Oh, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. And, <laughs> and you, you know, the the reality is that they want, that people are saying things, politicians are saying things that they think people want to hear, and any way that they can sort of hint that their policy is to mm. put more money back in people's pockets is, is, the, is the line that people are taking. You've got to hope that everything about the, the BBC and its licence fee summit and charter renewal will take on a new light once we know what flavour government we've got next year. Okay. So a bit of posturing. Uh, we'll move on. Next up, Amazon Prime Instant Video has announced that it is to schedule its first UK commission, Ripper Street, like a traditional teledrama. The strategy breaks from its biggest rival, Netflix, which releases shows like House of Cards all in one go for users to binge view. Uh, Stephen, this is interesting, is it not? <laughs> it's difficult to know whether it's interesting excited. or just Amazon trying to say we're not Netflix. I mean, I, I enjoy watching shows week by week. I enjoy binge watching. You know, when Orange is the New Black and House of Cards, I stayed up all night and watched them until my eyes were bleeding. And then within two days, it's gone. You know, and I've got to wait another year for it to, to happen again. So so you can cut it both ways. It's exactly that. I mean, possibly, the, you know, I don't know whether Ripper Street has got people waiting and a kind of, oh, my God, what's going to happen next kind of thing, which is what you are a bit like with the Netflix model. But um, this is just scheduling. Do you know what I mean? My bigger point is, will anybody pay for another subscription channel i think they're showing transparent as well or something like that mm-hmm. i think and Excellent. that's the only thing mm-hmm. transparent yet yeah, which is uh the one about the jeffrey the oh, transgender right. sort of uh, yeah. comedy yeah, drama isn't it? Yeah. yeah i was getting confused with the hallaberry drama exactly well yeah. this is the thing you know consumers are confused there's so many of these models so will anybody be buying amazon prime to watch ripper street once a week it doesn't sound like such a big you know, appeal, whereas Orange is the New Black, you know, I'm sort of waiting for it right now and it's not coming out till next June. Amazon clearly believes there's the the demand, though. So Ripper Street effectively was, um, had a couple of series, did pretty well for the BBC, but, uh, you know, as happens, BBC decided, no, they were going to stop with it and and move on, spend its money on some other dramas. And Amazon could tell from their own data of their customers, DVD sales were um, pretty good. And they knew from the kind of disgruntled fans on social media, there was a sort of an appetite for more reproduce. So they kind of stepped in and commissioned it that way. So it's not not a traditional sort of um, commissioning process. You know, there's no we don't know what best practice is yet for sort of scheduling things. And on I'm a bit surprised they're doing this because in my mind, the whole point about a sort of VOD service is the OD bit. The fact that you can watch it on demand when you want to rather than you have to you have to wait another Mm. another week. Binge viewing is something that's that's emerging, but I think there's always a slight danger that these things get get overstated. Hopefully, particularly when BBC Three potentially moves online, we'll see some different models and it will become clearer what best practice is for trying to eke out the most number of views uh, for an online piece of content. Okay, finally this week, it's Commission of the Fortnight, uh, but with an international twist. Uh, let's get your thoughts on these, gents. Uh, US network NBC is to remake Saturday Night Takeaway with How I Met Your Mother star Neil Patrick Harris hosting. This is a good bit of business, isn't it, Chris? It's good for IT. This this is the ITV strategy in 200-watt headlights, basically. This is own some IP, have a hit show in the UK, take it to an overseas market and make it yourselves. Uh, as long as the show's a hit, 
big if, but if that happens, then this is a huge tick for, for ITV's strategy. Neil Patrick Harris fan? Love him. Absolutely love him. I mean, he's an amazing host of things like the Emmys and... Uh, Doing the Oscars next year. The, uh, he's done the Tonys as well. Mm. I mean, he's, he's, he's phenomenal in terms of a talent. And I think that's the big the big appeal to this show. I mean, you know, watching an Ant and Deck alike uh, do the, do the things that we do in England, I don't think it's going to work in America. I think they're going to do it bigger and better and and put you know real bells and whistles on it. And he can do that. Mm. So it could be amazing. Could be you amazing. You could imagine win the ads going down very well in America. Yeah, I mean, you know, Ant and Deck have got a weirdly parochial kind of style that doesn't isn't international. Neil Patrick Harris is an international star. You know, he's a proper Hollywood Broadway legend who's who's got wit and can sing and can dance and can do everything. Um, you know, to me, that takes the show into a into a proper huge kind of thing because just doing a variety show in America is a big deal. Uh, you know, it's very interesting, and I'm, I'm really hopeful this is a this is a winner. Anna and Deck have got exec producer credits alongside. Uh... Uh, ITV Studios head of entertainment, uh, Shu Green. Yeah, I saw uh, how that. much input do you think they're going to? Oh, I'm sure they're going to be there every day, <laughs> looking over the scripts and staying up all night in the edits. No, I mean to me it looks like a vanity credit, but I say that from this position of sheer jealousy. <laughs> okay, lastly, uh, Big Brother is headed to China after Endemol struck a deal with online streaming service Yuku Tudu. What are your thoughts on this? Big Brother's not dead, is it? It keeps going around the world, still, still ticking over. I can't over. believe they're still selling it. It's just it's why, why would you why would you stop if you're why would you stop if you're in the world? I mean, certain markets, Big Brother feels like it's coming to the end of the road. We thought that in the UK actually, and Channel Five revived it perfectly. Satisf- I mean, I say perfectly satisfactorily. They actually for C Five, it's a, a massive hit. Mm. This is more about, I think, the fact that the number of potential customers that a distributor can now sell to is far far greater than it's ever been and uh, that's broadly good news for the industry will the voiceover still be a geordie <laughs> dear number 16 in the big um, brother china house yeah. uh no i mean it's, it's incredibly interesting and you know good luck to it that's really all i can say i mean the idea that china is starting to become a kind of buyer of you call it the new, the new frontier. Yeah, you know, exactly. In our last podcast, you know, I, I, did I? That sounds yeah. quite intelligent to me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if China are, are buying up all our old rubbish, then fine. That's, well, that's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, the idea that, that, that you know one show can go around the world ten times is just is great. It's absolutely what we all dream of. And, and I'm sure the thing about Big Brother, it still works. It, the psychological trapped rats in a cage element never doesn't sorry i'm getting all double negatives here never not works there you go that's terribly still a double negative that's still a i'm gonna give up we understand (laughs) we got it we got it we understand uh we'll leave it there that's the news for this episode my thanks to chris and stephen now our next guest is used to turning up the heat on the uk's most senior politicians but his drama, The Great Fire, puts its protagonists into altogether more real jeopardy. ITV political editor Tom Bradby has turned his hand to writing before, penning six novels and the 2012 film Shadow Dancer, but The Great Fire is his first television project. Starring Game of Thrones actors Charles Dance and Rose Leslie, the Acos film series focuses on the plight of a collection of Londoners caught up in the 1666 blaze. Before we head over to ITV's headquarters, where we caught up with Bradby, here's a sample of the drama where Charles II's advisers attempt to get a grip on the disaster. In the north, the Royal Exchange is threatened. 
And though it burns slower against the wind to the east, it's slowly creeping down Thames Street towards the tower. It is, of course, unthinkable to reach St. Paul's. Oh, yes, Majesties. How long are the current rate of progress until it dies? With the wind as it is, I would say about 12 hours. Where did they put the fire breaks I ordered? Well, sir, you see, it is possible that they have not yet actually managed to specifically act. Speak English, Hyde, for God's sake. He means they have not made the fire breaks you asked for. Why not? The trouble was, Your Majesty, that each householder would have demanded compensation for his loss. And it was not a request, Lord Hyde. It was not an invitation to hold a committee or set up an inquiry. It was an order, a straight bloody order. So, Tom, uh, you've just appeared on Good Morning Britain. Uh, you've got this enormous day it's job. early, isn't uh, it? <laughs> yeah, you've got this enormous day job at ITV News, and uh, you also present uh, uh, the agenda for, for ITV. Where do you find the time to write a, write a drama series? I mean, I suspect this is the most technically complex thing I, I will ever write. It's certainly the most complex thing I've ever written. So first of all, it's a disaster. You know, the whole, whole of London, more or less, or a large part of it burns to the ground. Everyone loses everything. So is it a disaster movie? Well, yes, clearly in part it is. But then that isn't going to be enough. You know, you're not going to, once you've watched one family be rescued from the fire, you're going to want to watch that for four hours. So then I kind of thought, well, it needs, you know, there was a whole business of, was it a Catholic plot and everything else? So I thought, well, we need a kind of political or sort of thriller element to go through this. So I thought about that. And then I thought, well, you know, it's a given with all these things and you learn that as a news reporter as much as a, as, as a writer, which is that if you don't engage people in the characters in a, in a situation like this, you know, they're not never going to watch for four hours. So we has to therefore be a relationship drama. So disaster movie, political thriller, relationship drama, which of these things is it? And I decided it had to be all three. And moving those stories through and meshing them together and making it all feel seamless was quite a complicated <laughs> thing to do, particularly when you've got to keep things moving in roughly equal measure in each of those 16 parts. And so to give you one example, the Peepses very much starts out in the drama as a relationship drama that, you know, Peeps was a terrible philanderer, quite a brutal philanderer, I thought, reading about him, actually. And so what I sort of paint is a portrait of a marriage in crisis. You know, he's going off to do his thing and she's, you know, he's a social climber trying to ingratiate with himself himself with the king he's also in a lot of ways as people familiar with his stories will know quite an attractive character you know she's flirting with her dance teacher as his wife indeed did do in real life but as the drama wears on what i obviously have to do is mesh their relationship drama into the overall narrative arcs and that was an interesting and complex challenge and you know hopefully people will feel that i pulled it off not short of ambition then so you were approached by cost films weren't you to take on the script what what appealed initially i actually think i initially said listen i haven't got time for this and they said oh come on go on take a meeting and i so i did i went and went and had a meeting and i just thought it was um, lucy bed from a cost it was her idea and it was just a really brilliant i just thought it was a really brilliant idea you know she said it's the one british event everyone knows but doesn't know that much about it lasted four days what about a drama that lasts four hours and you know we really want you to bring some of your you know said that the london riots and why people do what they do in situations of anarchy like that had it had really interested her and she wanted to see if i could bring that sort of aspect to the drama and wanted really to see if I could bring a lot of my experience from my day job over 25 years into writing a drama like this and that in itself was quite an irresistible challenge and then of course you know you go and do some research fatally because then you are hooked but you know Charles II is one of our most interesting characters I think this is one of the most interesting periods of history really 
in our So you country. became engrossed in the story, yeah, basically. Yeah, I became engrossed in the story. You know, Charles II's a guy who, you know, his dad had his head chopped off. He must have assumed once he got the throne back that he was going to suffer the same fate. Pepys, as I've already alluded to, is a fascinating character. And there just seems so much... You know, this was, after all, the period after our Republican experiment, which, by the way, just kind of fizzled out for total lack of imagination, really. So it's a... In a way, a neglected period in history and a rather interesting one. I've always been passionate about history. So, uh, so you mentioned the, the London riots there. Executive producer Douglas Ray has spoken about sort of creating a claustrophobia in the drama. And there's, uh, um, you, you've tried not to rely on CGI and you've tried to keep it quite close to the action. Can you talk us through what you've tried to achieve there? I think they were hoping to rely on CGI, but I don't think it was. They couldn't afford it. No, no, I think the problem was is that CGI doesn't work very well with fire on close-up. So I think there was a sort of horrified moment as the, as the production team contemplated the reality of what they were going to have to do. But the plus side is, you know, what they did was they ended up building a very expensive set and, and, and burning it. And I think, you know, certainly in the... When you watch the first episode, when you know Andy Buckner's the baker is running into the house, you know, you'll see. I mean, it's it's real fire, and I don't think he enjoyed doing it that much. And John Jones, the director, set. yeah. Well, there, some actors were. Um, I was doing something with Danny Mays yesterday, and we were joking that at one point he turned to the producer and said, "Is it meant to be this hot?" You know, it's it was. Uh, I don't think Andy Buckner's sitting. He's on the record as saying he didn't enjoy it that much. It was quite. Um, and John Jones, the director, who's a really good guy and a brilliant director, was kind of you know. Go on, closer, closer. Like, no, no, we're close enough. No, get in there, get in there. So I think there was a, it was a unusual shoot in that sense and very challenging. I, I hope people will see that it feels uh, very realistic. But you know, on 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 a more on broad level, what was I going for? You know, obviously I've covered big events like this and riots and situations of civil disorder and chaos and you know it's very very frightening so I certainly wanted to try and encapsulate that you know it's not just that the city burns down but you get thousands of people crushed in narrow streets you know that can create a you know mini crises of its uh, of its own being a refugee is a sort of terrifying and awful experience i wanted to uh, wanted to capture some of that but also you mentioned the london riots i've always had a kind of lifelong fascination in a way of how and why people behave as they do in situations of crisis. Some people are very selfish. Some people are very heroic. Not always the people you predict. When the London riots happened, people looted Foot Locker. Why did they do that? Was that a flash rebellion against privilege? Was it uh, people are selfish because they can be when you, in some cases, when you give them the chance? And so I'm trying to examine would be too strong a word but I'm trying to mesh a lot of that into it and there are some certainly some characters who I was very committed to who are kind of minor characters but become more important you know there's Wilson who's a sort of equivalent of a he's a boatman but he's sort of you know very prejudiced against Catholics there's a guy called Bagwell who is whoring out his wife in an incredibly unattractive way to Peeps which is indeed what happened in reality. And, you know, both Bagwell and Wilson become quite significant characters as the drama on the streets, if you like, unfolds. You know, they, they lead the lynch mobs and all the rest of it. So I, I'm, I'm sort of trying to, you know, I, I suppose get down into the bones of how people behave. No footlocker, like losing, though. <laughs> well, there is no footlocker, but there is a bit of looting. Uh, the, uh, the Portuguese wine shop gets looted, I can exclusively reveal. Slightly more upmarket. <laughs> Slightly more upmarket. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, do you, do you, have you enjoyed this process? Do you think you'll you'll write another TV drama as a result of this? I think I'll. Do, yeah, I, I I have. Um, I mean, it's a massive challenge. I've loved doing it. I'll certainly do it again. I think I, the interesting thing is, have you been approached to do other projects? Yeah. Yes. Yes, <laughs> I, I have. I've been sort of contemplating various things, and and you know, dramas that are 
fascinating moment. You know, it's getting more and more ambitious and more and more money is being, you look at some of the, you know, the big American series, House of Cards, Boardwalk, and they're spending phenomenal amounts of money on it that would have been unimaginable a while ago. So the, the, the sky is the limit. And I suppose what I would say is, you know, I, I think I will continue doing all of those mediums and switching bet- between them. You know, writing a novel is different from writing a film, is different from writing a TV drama. And some ideas, frankly, suit one more than the other. So in a way, I've got, you know, one of the joys, I suppose, is that I, I can sort of pick at each point where I put my energies. And I'm sure I will continue to juggle all three at various different points. OK, and while we've got you, Tom, uh, obviously the broadcasters have put forward their proposals for the election debates. Do you think they'll succeed? Do you think uh, there's the appetite among the political parties to, to do this again? It's a, it's a really fascinating, rather knotty political dilemma that, and it'll be very interesting to see you know, it's kind of slightly being negotiated above my pay grade, thank God. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see how it, it works out. I mean, in a way, the problem is that politics is fracturing in a way that is quite difficult to analyse, actually. What what none of us know is, is this sort of, you know, UKIP's running at incredibly high in the polls at the moment. What is that all about? Is that a sort of flash kind of, you know, rebellion, if you like, or is which is going to fade away and the election will be very conventional and people will either decide one party or, you know, Labour or Tory because, you know, you're probably going to get a prime minister of one or the other? Or is this just are people fed up with that and they're actually just going to, you know, go all the way through and UKIP may, you know, for all I know, get a very high vote? So there's... All of this is making it very complicated and, you know, as, you, as has been discussed, can you have UKIP without the Greens? So I think... There's going to be, not to mention the SNP's very good performance recently, which raises the whole question of whether it's even fair to have national debates anyway, when, you know, the SNP and other nationalist parties are doing very well all around the country. So it's a very, very difficult one. I think it would be a terrible shame if we didn't have debates. I think they were a really important part of the election last time. I suspect one of the concessions the Tories will demand for taking part is that they don't happen in the campaign, maybe just before the campaign, but not in the campaign. Also, the political parties' kind of calculations may, you know, change over time as well. I mean, I think probably the Tories, I would guess, are kind of not very keen to give Nigel Farage lots of airtime. But on the other hand, they may suddenly decide, you know, what the threat's so big, we need to, we need to have the airtime to, you know, face him down. So calculations can change as time goes on. And just quickly, finally, do you think the the rules from t- two thousand and ten need to be relaxed? Uh, it feels like it's heading that way, doesn't it? You mean the rules in the yeah, debate? Yeah, in terms of yeah, the, how how the debate is structured and uh, and what governs them. I don't actually, I haven't devoted much thought about that, to be absolutely honest with you. I'm not conducting a debate, thank God, in a sense, so I don't have <laughs> to worry Julia about doing it. doing it, isn't it? Yeah, and she'll be really, uh, she'll be really fantastic at it, actually. Um, and I think she'll have them, you know, properly uh, in place. Um, and she'll be a very, very good referee. Um, she's brilliant, Judy, because she's got a very, very nice manner, but she's, you know, quite tough when she needs to be. So she'll, I, th- I don't think they'll get away with anything with her, which will be will be good and she has a very nice understated way of, of bringing them up to the mark which I think will be very very effective so I'm keen yeah I'm keen to see that debate and w- will the rules be relaxed maybe they will have to be to some degree but I thought it worked relatively okay last time there's always that interesting moment I noticed Alex Salmon tried it, it did it in the um, the debates that he had of someone doing something a bit different you know you know how he started Clegg, walking around well he started walking around <laughs> and I thought that was really I mean you know he did he did pretty well so whom I'd say it was the wrong strategy but he he kind of that whole business of walking in front of the lecture was kind of quite weird and you know it's a bit like Nick Clegg last time you know looking down the barrel but of course the, the terrible you know, truth to admit is that sometimes for both of those guys it did kind of work didn't it you know um 
I imagine there'll be lots of you know anxious uh, discussions with their media advisors about how, what broadcast trick they can play that makes them you know suddenly connect with the audience. But okay, well, good luck with that, and good luck with the great fire. I hope it all goes well. Thank you very much. Welcome back. It's that time of the show where we peruse the telly goods soon to hit our screens. Uh, Stephen D. Wright and Chris Curtis are back with me. Uh, we've got two documentaries to get stuck into this week, and we'll start with Nat Geo's Hasselhoff versus the Berlin Wall, produced by Darlo Smithson to mark the 25th anniversary of the Berlin Wall's fall. Hasselhoff retraces the history of the concrete divide and meets those who lived in its shadow. In this clip, the Hoff describes one family's escape across the wall in an armoured bus. On Christmas Eve 1962, Wolfgang and his family set off from their home in East Germany to West Berlin. Up front were the driver Jürgen and his father riding shotgun. There was snow on the ground, it was night, and Wolfgang's father had bet that the Berlin Wall checkpoint would be quiet. For the eight passengers, it would be the most terrifying bus journey they would ever make. The driver, when we approached the border, he, he got down to the gas, and then he put full speed, and then we hit the barrier. And wow. uh, at, the, at the moment when we, when we broke through the, the barriers, we were all on the floor. And was there a, a, a guard at the barrier, or, or? Nine people with their guns. Stephen, did you enjoy this, or were you looking for freedom? I loved this. I was quite surprised initially because I, I'm not a huge fan of the Hoff, but I do remember the wall coming down. I cried that night when I saw it happen. And, um Oh, I do. I watched it. I watched it. I was living in Istanbul at the time. And I watched it come down and I, and I wept um, with happiness. And I'd forgotten about the wall. This is the thing. I'd forgotten about it. I'd forgotten about how big a deal it was and how incredibly evil and authoritarian the East uh, German uh, authorities became. And um, and this was a brilliant device to bring in somebody who is a god in Germany, you know, naff to the rest of us. But actually, that kind of, it, it sort of, it opened it up and it made it very accessible to watch. It didn't feel like dull history. It did bring it alive. I mean, I loved his little sort of right-wing patriotism every so often. Yeah, fantastic. And, you know, you you know, you know killed that guard. Yeah, brilliant. Um, <laughs> you know, there was a bit of that. But um, but as a, as a documentary, I thought this was really, really watchable. I loved the graphics. The graphics and were good, actually. The, the graphics were, yeah. blew me away. But the, the, the access, the stories, and this was a proper documentary, a proper documentary done well, you know, a little bit sexy for the international market, but worked. It worked for me. He's an engaging uh, sort of conduit, isn't he? Yeah, I, I kind of I wonder whether we're going to send Alan Partridge to North Korea next or or, <laughs> or something like that. I, I I had the main problem I had with this was it seemed to have its tongue in its cheek half the time and then try and tell me sort of moving stories yeah, the other half harrowing the time. stories. Yeah, and I didn't for me that didn't quite work. I mean Hasselhoff is amusing and there were bits where I was sort of chuckling along to myself and I clearly you know that was that was the that was the intention I liked when he said that he was describing life in East Berlin and and he, he listed all these terrible things that were going on and then he said and there were almost there was almost a complete lack of luxury goods as well and that was his idea of of of, of hell you know I kind of get the idea of having an accessible figure someone that can lighten the mood a little bit but for me tonally it kind of fell between two stools a little bit oh, that was amazing that that clip of him 
singing, oh, yeah. you've been looking for, I've been looking for Very freedom. Singing on the Berlin Wall. I mean, I mean, it's been much used, but it's still quite powerful. Well, to me, that, yeah. that's the thing. I mean, that and the fact that every German he met kind of literally grabbed him and kissed him gave Hasselhoff that varnish of, 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 uh, of, of credibility yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, he was a German icon. And the fact that that terribly naff pop song became, was an underground hit, you know, that allowed me to sort of suppress my my inner disbelief. And then it became a boy's own story because then you heard these incredible adventures which were genuinely real. I mean, people were crying. You know, I got all teary-eyed at the end with the with the uh, the incredible footage of the two microlites. The German uh, you know, contributors were fantastic. Just incredible. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the thing. I, I'm old enough to remember all this. To a young audience now, I think they'd be like, what did this really go on in the 80s? Do you know what I mean? I mean, this is how people were lived. They got shot for trying to escape, you know, 50 yards across... Uh, it, I mean, that's what's so amazing. It, it's a, it's already an incredible, fantastic thing. So therefore, Hoff on top didn't spoil it for me. I mean, we don't look at Nat Geo shows very often. In fact, I think this is the first time we've considered one. Uh, you know, where does this sit among its other output? I mean, and clearly the Hoff is going to help it stand out, isn't it? And, and yeah, essentially hook in com- viewers. Com- completely. I mean, they're, they're, it's an attempt to take one of Nat Geo's traditional subjects, which is kind of modern history a sort of hint of military history about it and find an accessible way of doing it and i you know there were lots of there were lots i really liked the 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 german contributors and some of the stories there was lots of things that i you know i didn't know about that that it told me i just thought hasselhoff blundering his way through yeah, I mean, he wasn't wearing his red lifeguards outfit from Baywatch. I mean, he was. He being did put a... on his jacket from when he performed that song. Well, I, I was impressed he could still fit it. Um, <laughs> but you know, I mean, he wasn't. He, you know, he wasn't denigrating the material. He was genuinely sort of doing it from the perspective of somebody who knew Germany quite well. I mean. He spent a lot of time in Germany. Look at your face. Yeah, I, I'm not. I will have the to, narrowing I, of the eyes. No, there, I'm, I'm, I wasn't sold on the Hoff. I'm afraid. <laughs> All right, Hasselhoff versus the Berlin Wall airs on the fourth of November at nine pm on Nat Geo. Our final stop this episode is BBC Two, where we'll alight on its latest access documentary, Posh People Inside Tatler. The three-part garden production series goes behind the scenes of the High Society magazine and follows its moneybags readers. Here, Tatler new boy Matthew Bell attempts to get some of his first features commissioned. I'm still gauging what Kate wants because I'm new and each editor has their own idea of what they want. Um, so, you know, I pitch ideas and she'll say no or yes. Let's just remind me of the feature that Mary Flynn suggested, which is how the middle class has ruined everything. Um, <laughs> the middle class is becoming rich, has sort of destroyed taste in Britain, but they have ruined public schools um, because now children are so pampered they go home every weekend. So her whole I thesis very, I mean, it would is... be a very funny talking point. Yeah. yeah. And a great cover line. <laughs> are you posh? <laughs> Um, no, technically not. I'm um, half foreign and half um, sort of intelligentsia. Um, my father's a doctor and my mother's a teacher, so in a way you couldn't get a more sort of middle-class background. I just think people are the most interesting thing in the world. Chris, do you want to suppose off on this one? The top 10% uh, of anything Champ speaking is there, the, uh, the most John Tatler is clearly posh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's, that was my take. By I mean, any other definition, he is posh. By any other definition apart from his own. Um, I'm kind of starting to be a bit tired of access docs, to be honest. There were humorous moments in it and things that I liked. I kind of wanted this either to be a documentary about posh people 
or a documentary about Tatler. I don't think the Tatler element was particularly strong. That whole sort of, let's go inside the world of Tatler, I didn't really care what happened inside of Tatler. There was no sort of... Well, um, nothing really did Nothing happen happened. It was boring, the I mean, magazine bits. It was much a, better when they went outside. Yeah, it's a device to get you in. I mean, Tatler are not going to ruin their brand by allowing you to see their dark secrets. So you're absolutely right. It was just posh people by another name, but very entertaining. Very intense TV. Yeah, all but, the all the editorial meetings they were hosting uh, seemed very staged. Didn't well, they? exactly. I mean, years ago when I was at Channel Four, we got access to Vogue. I was commissioning it, and we had to give up after six weeks because they wouldn't allow the cameras mm. into the meetings. So into they were, the real meetings. Into the real meetings, yeah. and that was the problem. It's like so you know, Tatler will love this because it makes them look fabulously kind of funny and relaxed, and they're not so class obsessed. When the reality is, of course, it's. Uh, you know, the poshest this, the poshest that, et cetera, et cetera. But as an entertaining doc, which is what it is, it was it was great. But whether or not there's a kind of viewer fatigue of that, having watched Selfridges and all the rest of it, uh, not Selfridges. Uh, John was, Lewis. No, Iceland. no, not Selfridges. Um, Claridges. 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 See, there we go. Uh, it wasn't a patch on Claridges, I didn't But do you know what I mean? That's the problem. It's inside Claridges, you know, was, was a gold standard of posh people acting up and had more access. This is a bit of access... Lovely, kind of genteel, posh people, but nothing really happened. Yeah. And you kind of think, what's going to happen next week? You know, is anything more dramatic going to happen? Or is it going to be Matthew writing another sort of posh feature and a fabulous Aristo saying, come and have a look at my old crumbling pile? You know, I mean, it's it's it was all a bit so what? But I would watch it. I'd sit there and watch it and I'd happily... So you're not, I mean, we've done a few access documentaries on, on the podcast. You're mm. not, you haven't got fatigue. When you look at it, you go... Mm. Because in the first five minutes, you sort of know what you're going to get. But it's quite entertaining. You know, it's that whole warm bath TV. It's like you don't bother to switch over because it's kind of, it washes over you. Mm. Um, it didn't feel revelatory at all. I didn't learn anything about Tatler. And I've, I know, you know, you read the Tatler. I've read it for years. And so they, there's been, they have, you know, broken news and made scandals and whatever. But there was none of that, really. There was the odd kind of, oh, we all used to do this and you know parties that and, but it was it was basically it was, it was wallpaper mm. you know posh is in vogue at the moment posh though. is in vogue life is tough and then there's uh, there was a kind of a much better show yeah. by the way yeah. that is more revelatory because those posh people are just un, unediting you know they're just they are saying what they feel whereas everybody on this program knows exactly what they're talking Channel about Channel doing can't get the staff as well which is uh, yeah Lady Colin posh. Campbell and all the rest of it yeah. but yeah. What, what, where's this fascination come from I think it's partly to do with the sort of disparity between super... I mean, so in it's a, super rich is a London thing, right? Um, so I think I, I saw a great little quote the other day which said that life in London is no longer about the haves and have-nots, it's the haves and have-yots. Yeah. Um, and, and there's something definitely quite London-y about that. I wonder how all this plays outside of I mean, uh, look, the capital. Yeah, let's look at what, what's the biggest show on TV. Downton Abbey. Mm. Yeah. You know, that's the one I wait for every week, you know, and if I don't get it, I'll, you know, kick and scream until the next one comes on. <laughs> it's, you know, the biggest show on TV and then the biggest documentary from two years ago was Inside Clarities. No wonder commissioners are saying get more posh people on. Mm. Posh people, when they are good on TV, like Life is Tough, are brilliant TV. And and the other thing is we've not, we're not not watching the scum underclass either, because they're also on TV. Yeah. You know, there's the people anyway. like us and all the rest of it. There's a lot of that on TV. So class is the big issue. That's what Gogglebox is all about. Yeah. You know, I mean, so it's never gone away. 
but whether or not it is just a sort of scheduling thing of we're just getting posh documentary after posh documentary after posh documentary, that will probably sort of fade a little bit and then there'll be another one that comes up. And, you know, this is a perennial thing. What what Tatler didn't have, I didn't think, was that, that brilliant... It, if there was one character who worked on the magazine who was just gold, you know, like a... Like there wasn't a, anybody nuts enough. No. The were, closest was the photographer, wasn't it? Yeah. Who, 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 was, was, yeah. who was... I mean, these people are witty, charming and urbane. They're not mad. <laughs> and that's the difference between Life is Tough, for example, and uh, and Inside Tatler. You know, mad is better TV. This is, is pleasant. TV. What about the editor who only sees her husband at the weekends? Yeah, well, I'd love to know a bit more yeah, about that. Yeah, so that was intriguing, wasn't it? You know, it? Where, what does he do and where yeah. does she live and da 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 But, you know, it, that's the thing. You, we, weren't, we weren't seeing that. Yeah, I don't think we're going to get that much in the, in, in the next two episodes either. Uh, you know, it felt a bit surface and a bit. It, it was. It was. It, they were trying to use Tatler as a device to go and interview lots of posh people, and for me, it didn't quite live up to what I thought it might be. Okay, Tatler opens its doors in November on BBC Two, uh, and that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to my guests Stephen D. Wright, Chris Curtis, and Tom Bradby. Uh, we're taking a short break, but we'll be back late next month uh, to provide your regular fix of Telly Talk. Until then, I've been Jake Cantor and the producer was the masterful Matt Hill. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios.